Well, good morning. I hope we're all coming and gathering together after having had a blessed time of uh, Thanksgiving with, with family. I hope we're not uh, too far. Uh, um, uh, there's always that process after Thanksgiving of recovery a little bit from the food and whatnot. Hopefully that's finished enough and we're ready to come back together around John chapter 12. If you haven't turned there, do that already, John 12. Uh, and we'll start in just a moment at verse 33. This morning is, in, in one way, it's a completing of something. Because of what we read in this chapter, we have been in a, something of a series that ends this morning that we've called the mystery of Christ. And we've been watching laid out in front of us here in this narrative a number of details and events that Paul is going to grab later on in several places and call the mystery of Christ. And so we've, we've tried to notice that very deliberately. It's meant in some places that we've had our work cut out for us. Because these are, these are deep truths. They're very significant things. The things that Paul says uh, have not been revealed to the sons of men in other generations that were now made known to the holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. And so we've sort of had our work cut out for us. And we have that again this morning for that reason. So, for example, last week, we didn't just need to hear and understand those particular verses in John 12. We also had to understand, because of what it was giving us, how God's plan of victory over our enemies entailed a key victory regarding Satan's stranglehold over the nations of the world. It's a big subject, and we had to to get into that in order to understand what we were seeing there. And this morning is similar. We're not just going to need to understand what we're given here in verses 33 to 43, and that's what our text will be this morning. But in order to do that, we need to understand what God's Word has said overall about what Paul calls in Romans 11:25 a partial hardening of the Jews. This is another big concept that Paul will flesh out a great deal in the book of Romans especially. So we'll be in Romans sometimes this morning. Uh, and because of what he does and because of what John's going to point us to, we'll be in the book of Isaiah quite a bit this morning as well. So we have some places to go. So crack your knuckles, have your fingers flexed, be ready to move just a little bit at some points. Um, and to do all of this, here's our plan this morning. We're walking toward... Uh, and going to try to answer three questions this morning. This is not our outline for the morning. So if you're taking notes, this isn't the outline. But this is what we're going to try to accomplish. And we'll come back to these three questions and summarize them at the end. I hope what we'll see as we move through this text is this. Number one, what's happening here with the Jews? In fact, what does God's word tell us has happened with the Jews nationally? That's one question we need to try to answer. Second question is, why has it happened this way? And the third question is, how is it good that God has done things this way? What's happening with the Jews? What are we learning about that? Why has it happened like this? And how is it good that God has worked like this, that he's chosen this path? Now, the path we'll take to get there is even more simple than that. So if you're taking notes, this is the outline for the message. It's a lot more simple. We're simply going to walk through the text from the beginning to the end, and we'll take note of five elements of the text as we just walk through them. So that will be the outline that we follow, and I'll give you those as we go along. But to begin, can we read verses 33 to 43? Actually, I'll start reading in verse 32. 
And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'll include verse 32 because it's pointed to in verse 33. Jesus ends what he said like this. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Just like last week, a number of things to see and be confronted with in our passage this morning. The first thing that we see here in our text is a question. You see it in verse 34. The crowd is asking Jesus a question, following up what he's just said to them. And we should not miss the fact that given their question, here's one thing we can see. They clearly understood what John is letting his readers in on in verse 33. They understood his comment about being lifted up to refer to death. Can you tell that? Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And they reply with this question in 34, and it's actually, in some ways, a very perceptive question that they ask, because they draw a line of identification between the Messiah, or Christ, and the Son of Man, and between all of that and Jesus himself. He had said in verse 32, when I am lifted up. He never said the Son of Man would be lifted up. He said, when I am lifted up. And their question is, wait a minute, we've heard that the Christ remains forever, so how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? You can hear in that they understand all of that to be referring to Jesus. It wouldn't be hard for them. The Son of Man is the title he has used to speak of himself more than any other title in his ministry. They know he's talking about himself. But what's especially noteworthy is that they have clearly connected that to this sense of Messiah or Christ that he has been giving them. And they summarize their question in verse 34 by asking this. They say, who is this Son of Man? 
One commentator explained this very well, and I wanted to just share this with you. Listen to what he wrote. He said, what is clear is that the Palestinian Judaism of the time expected the Messiah to be triumphant, and most expected him to be eternal. Jewish sources amply attest this. And so they asked the question, who is this son of man? By this, they do not seek simple identification. Again, they clearly know he's talking about himself. By this, they do not seek simple identification, but demand to know what kind of son of man or Messiah Jesus has in mind, of whom it can be said that he will die. That is not only the sort of question we might expect the crowds to ask the historical Jesus during the closing hours of his public ministry, I'm still quoting here, it is also the sort of question that Jews and Jewish proselytes interested in Christianity at the end of the first century would need to have answered before they could become Christians. Interested Jews and proselytes who were considering the claims of Christianity would ask the question reflected here. What kind of son of man are you claiming Jesus is when we know he died in ignominy and under the curse of God? What kind of savior are you describing who would need to die? That's their question. It's a good question, isn't it? You've brought up your death here, the necessity of it, Jesus. Tell us more. Help us to understand how it could be that the Son of Man, the Christ, could die. It's the first thing we see here is their question. The second thing that we see, of the five we'll see here this morning, the second thing that we see is Jesus' reply. That's in verses 35 and 36. And maybe you noticed when we read his reply that in his reply, he chooses to ignore their question. He does not respond to it. He doesn't give clarification at all. Why does he do that? Well, it seems that in what he does answer, we find the answer to that question. What he says speaks for itself. He is doing that because the time for explanations and teaching is over. Here's how he responds to them. He says, the light is only with you for, and he uses the word micron, micro, for a bit more time. As you're asking me for explanation, the light's almost done walking among you. And what's more, their problem is not that they lack a perfectly clear picture of how Jesus is going to save in this way. They do lack that picture at this moment. That's not their problem. All they're going to need to do is stand by and watch, and they'll see how this rescue is going to play out. But here's the question, what will even seeing it or having it described to them, what will any of that matter if they don't believe in him? I thought of an analogy, which is always a dangerous thing, but maybe this is helpful. It, it struck me, it's kind of like them standing on a ship that is sinking. There's water up to their waist. And there's a rescue ship right beside them. The man on the rescue ship is beckoning them to jump aboard, and they're asking for more details about the rescue mission. And the man on the ship says, we'll get you some explanation on the way home. But right now, you need to jump into the boat. Time is of the essence. The cross is literally days away at this moment. But in fact, the urgency is even greater 
than that. The departure of this light for them is even closer than that. Because when Jesus does what we read here, when he departs in verse 36 and hides himself from them, we have just seen the last mention of the crowd in this entire gospel. This is the end. This is the end of the crowd's opportunity to hear from the one whom God has sent. The one who has come and who has only spoken what the Father had given him to say. So it makes sense, given Jesus' knowledge of the times and of God's purposes, that he would reply like he does. By not going into an explanation as to their question, but instead using this final moment to urge them as he does. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So we've heard the crowd's question, and we've heard Jesus' reply. The third thing for us to see then this morning is the verdict that John gives of this whole situation in verse 37. We have this definitive statement of closure at the end of 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. D.A. Carson writes here that, quote, not only is the public ministry of Jesus now drawing to a close, but by his withdrawal, his self-conscious hiding from the people, he is acting out the judicial warning he has just pronounced. There goes the light. They had the light dwelling with them, walking among them for a time. And as we've gone through this gospel, to know now that that time is over, does it seem like even a shorter time than you had typically tended to think? That's how it's felt to me. It's over. That was a rare moment. An opportunity. Those who believe in Jesus will continue to seek him. They'll continue to walk after him, to follow him. And therefore, they will continue to have access to the light. But the light is done with its mission to walk among them in the world and personally call men to himself. It's done. So how'd it go? What's the verdict? This is what John gives us in verse 37. And in a sense, it's such a damning verdict that it's going to require explanation. And that's what the next thing is that we'll see in just a moment. A great deal of explanation. Not just, we don't just need to know how did it go, but how on earth did it go like this? How on earth did it go like it looks like it's gone in that moment? Here's the verdict that John gives. Verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The verdict matches exactly what we've seen in reaction to Christ's display of divine power and divine authority. And this is all that we've seen. Think of just what has been witnessed on behalf of the people. Just from chapters 5 to 11, what have they seen? Either seen with their own eyes or heard firsthand from others who saw it with their own eyes. 
There's been the healing of the paralytic right there outside of the temple. There's been the feeding of the 5,000, which if you were with us when we went through that, I hope you remember just how insane that was. This display of power that they're seeing there. Jesus has walked on the surface of the water across the lake. He has healed a man who has been blind since birth, which we saw then required nothing short of a rewiring of the man's brain. They've seen the resurrection of Lazarus four days after his death. And in that time, what have we heard from the Jewish crowd and leadership? Isn't this the son of Joseph? Don't we know his father and mother? Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Who do you make yourself out to be? We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? We've seen throughout this, it doesn't matter how many things they have seen. There's always been reason to hold back from him and to question the next thing. Now, as we're about to see, that's not a description of every Jew in the nation that Christ has walked among, is it? Verse 11 of our chapter here already reported that many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. But John says here in this verdict that the bulk response from the Jewish people is that they did not believe in him. And in fact, he also emphasizes in particular in this gospel that that's the official response of those representing the Jewish nation, the religious and civil leaders of the Sanhedrin. So that it can be characteristically said like this. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, is going to explain this verdict to us now. Why this has come to pass. So this is the fourth thing that we see. By far we'll spend the most time on this this morning. Verses 38 to 41. An explanation of the verdict. But even before we go into verse 38, we should remember what John has already told us about this. If we've been reading his presentation of the life and ministry of Jesus in this gospel, this should not be an outcome that should have been surprising to the readers. We made the point a long time ago when we were in John chapter 1 that John 1, 1 to 18 is a prologue for the whole book. It's, a, it's in fact a summary of the entire gospel. All the big points that we see made in the Gospel of John are previewed for us in John 1, 1 to 18. And you remember what we heard there in verse 11. Before any of the action began, we heard this, about this one who was to come. He came to his own, and his own people, what? Did not receive him. He told us this is what was going to happen. In verse 37, what we're reading is, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The they there is the Jews. This is an announcement of the rejection of their own Messiah by the Jewish people. And it begs a number of questions. 
which I suspect is the reason that John proceeds with the explanation that he does. Why on earth has this happened? The Father sent his Son into the world in this way, with a mission to save. It is God who chose and called Israel and called them a holy nation. What's going on? Are we witnessing a failure of God's plan to save? And then clearly there's this group of Jews who do believe in him. The next verse in John 1 made that point, that there were some who did. We've seen it in 12.11 again, and we'll see it in verse 42 of our text. This constant pointing out that among the nation, there are some who are believing. So what's the deal with that? What's the difference? What's happening? Why is God doing things this way? Can you hear how important these questions are and how important they would be in particular to the early church? What I hope you notice this morning, though, as well, is how this fits in with the last question that the crowd asked Jesus. What kind of Savior, and therefore what kind of salvation are we talking about here? Where the Messiah would have to die. Where he would come and seem to be defeated. What is God doing? And with all of this in mind, in verses 38 to 43, John takes us back to the prophet Isaiah. You see verse 38, how it begins. He says, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. John's thesis goes like this. It has happened like this by intention. In fact, it had to happen like this. God's word has declared he was going to do this, and God's word will be fulfilled. And in the course of this explanation, he takes us back to two places in Isaiah. The first place he takes us is Isaiah chapter 53. So go back there with me, Isaiah 53. He's going to quote verse 1 of this chapter. Now, I've said this before, even recently, but it applies yet again here. So let me repeat it. Quite often, New Testament authors reference a verse in the Old Testament, not just to bring that verse to your mind, but they intend it as a spark to bring to mind a particular passage. It's obvious in the way that, that they go back to the Old Testament many, many times. And that's what he's doing here. He brings up this introductory quotation in verse 38. But the question is, what is the scene that he's bringing our mind back to? So let's read some here and let's receive this reminder. This chapter, Isaiah 53, is fairly famous, isn't it? It's describing a coming suffering servant whom God is going to send. And what we read in this chapter is that this suffering servant that God will send is going to be despised and rejected. The first verse foretells that in the form of a question. He asks, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You have what he's heard from us and the arm of the Lord. There are messages from God. Who's believed what he's heard from us? And there are works from God that will be put on display, the arm of the Lord. And the clear implication of his question is, has anyone believed? This is going to be quoted elsewhere in the New Testament as well, right alongside of the story of Elijah. 
where Elijah is despairing and thinking he's the only one left, and God has to reassure him. I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. This is what this question is entailing. Has has anyone received what we have, have brought to them? The next verses then bear out more the fact that God's work with this suffering servant is going to be missed. That's what's being emphasized. He says there's nothing that stood out physically about this suffering servant to commend him. You see verse 3, he appears as a man forsaken and despised. He says, Isaiah says there, and he uses the first person, we, who's that? He says, we esteemed him not. It's kind of crazy, isn't it, to think of, to hear him speaking in the past tense about a prophecy of the future tense that he's describing here. But this is his recollection. This is what he is telling us is going to be when the suffering servant comes. What will happen? We will not esteem him. Verses 4 to 6 make the point that this suffering, however, is being dealt to this man on behalf of God's people. And for our purposes this morning, look down at verse 8. We read this. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Who considered? Who considered in his generation, those for whom, with whom this was happening, that he was being stricken, he was being cut off for the transgression of God's people? In other words, what are we finding? Isaiah predicting for us. God is doing things in this that they will not understand. And in fact, he had ordained that their lack of understanding would lead to the very accomplishment that he was sending his son to bring about. He's not sending his son in this way to conquer with a sword. He's sending his son to lay down his life. He has to die. Verse 10, God had sent him to give him as a guilt offering for sin. And so he must be rejected because it's by his wounds that we are going to be healed. This has always been God's intention. We're hearing plans of atonement for sin. And what we're finding in, don't turn back to John yet, but what we're finding in this explanation is that it had to happen this way. John's going to put it in very strong words in our passage in verse 39 of our text when he's going to say, therefore they could not believe. And as I thought about it this week, I'm more and more having the sense that we can be confused about that if we emphasize maybe the could not, although he is making a statement about ability here, as we'll see. But I think the emphasis should be on the therefore. Here would be my paraphrase of that statement when John says, therefore they could not believe. I think he's saying something like this. This is why God did not grant them belief. Because of the necessities of Isaiah 53. Faith is a gift from God. When I savingly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it is most certainly I that believes. God does not believe for me. But when I put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, it's because the Holy Spirit has already been at work applying the redemption purchased 
by Christ. Granting me eyes to see, giving me a heart of flesh that can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus so that it might be responded to and believed on. John says here, therefore, this is the reason why God did not grant that in the Jews as a collective reality. Now, we're not moving away from that, but we're going to add to it because that's exactly what John does. He doesn't change the subject, but he adds to what he's explaining when he gives us another context. In our text, in verse 39, he says, For again Isaiah said, and then he points us to Isaiah chapter 6. So if you're still in Isaiah, you're in the right place. Just flip back to chapter 6. This is an interesting place because he's, you'll hear it as we read. He's going to paraphrase this. He doesn't quote it exactly. That happens plenty of times. That's no problem. But here's what we're going to do in Isaiah 6, something that almost nobody ever does when they go to Isaiah 6. We're going to bypass the vision of God's throne in verses 1 to 7. It's almost the universal reason you go to Isaiah 6 is to read the first seven verses. We're going to start in verse 8. In verse 8, God inquires for someone to go out to Israel on his behalf. And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. So God commissions him and gives him his calling. Look at verses 9 and 10. The divine commission to the prophet Isaiah. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing. But do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And we read that and we say some version of wow. Maybe not what we would expect to hear as God commissions a prophet. But if you'd read the chapters leading up to chapter 6, you'd be much less surprised that this is what we hear. Because what we find leading up to this are announcements and descriptions of the unbelief of the nation of Israel. Isaiah 121, how the faithful city has become a harlot. Isaiah 3.1, behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah both support and supply. Judgment is coming because of their unbelief. This is what we hear. It's a dangerous thing for you, for me to run out of water up here. So let's just fix that right there. Uh, And so what happens? God sends Isaiah with a message of judgment to his people. And he's sending Isaiah out to a people predisposed to resent such a message. What happens when someone keeps coming to you with a message that you do not like and that you're predisposed to resent? What happens to you as it comes and again and again? It's the reason that the majority of parents with young kids do not set up a drum set in one of the rooms in the house and invite them to start developing. That just doesn't happen very often. We're already wired to find loud, banging, distasteful. And so with every bang of those drums, we get a little more irked and resentful. And if the child keeps doing that, you could say that they are hardening your heart with every strike. 
That's what it means when the Bible speaks of God hardening someone's heart against him. We don't get the word hardening here, but it's in John's paraphrase of this. It's his description of what's being described here. It's not talking about God taking an otherwise soft heart toward God and hardening it for them. There are no naturally soft hearts toward God in the human race since Genesis chapter 3. That's nowhere in this picture. This is talking about God bringing himself, usually in particular his authority, to them. Refusing to leave them alone, but presenting himself to them and their hard hearts. And choosing at the same time not to supernaturally soften their heart with his grace as he does so. And notice that we use the word grace. What's the word grace mean? Well, somewhere in that definition, if it's a good one, had better be the word undeserved. Otherwise, it's not grace. So it's a choice on God's part to withhold gracious work as they are confronted by who he is. He's withholding something, and this is very important, that he was never obligated to give in the first place, was he? To whom does God owe anything? This is why Paul says in Romans 9, 18, and notice the two categories he gives here. There are two options. He concludes that portion like this. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, our theology must have room for a sentence like that, must it? I hope that yours does. It's something that confronts us. But this helps us to understand the picture he's giving. God is coming to us with demands. He is our maker. He is the righteous judge. There are one of two things that will happen. He will grant mercy or he will keep coming. And as he does, what will happen to us? We will be further hardened against him. Because in our very nature, we are haters of God. Now, I hope you're still in Isaiah 6. By verse 10... God has told Isaiah, I'm going to send you to my people with a message that they are going to refuse to hear. And by your prophetic work, they will in fact grow more and more hardened. They will refuse to listen to you, and thus they will refuse to turn to me and be healed. It is interesting, Israel in doing that, is simply continuing the pattern that they have displayed throughout their existence as a nation. It's easy to see in the wilderness generation, isn't it, of Exodus. But even to the next generation after that, the ones who are brought in, Moses says to them in Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 to 4, says, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Sounds a lot like Isaiah 6, doesn't it? You look back and you realize God has always been making this point, pointing out to them the need for something more than the old covenant and its community could provide. So Isaiah is to go and bring this message of condemnation and judgment that's going to be ignored. And we hear from him a question in verse 11 that we are very sympathetic with. How long, O Lord? He's not oozing with 
excitement and anticipation at this prophetic commissioning. How long am I going to need to do this? Look at what God says to him in response. And he said, And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Isaiah, you're going to bring this message until this place has been laid waste until the house is desolate. Now make no mistake, the direct fulfillment of this, of Isaiah's message, is physical exile of the nation, which ends when God returns a remnant of those believing Jews from their exile. That is a direct application here. But when that happens, what do we see, and the prophets continue to attest to, that even in the return, pervading disbelief will not have been removed from this people. Because they represent a covenant that does not change the heart. Only the new covenant is going to do this. And so Paul in Romans 10, 21 will himself quote Isaiah when Paul characterizes national Israel with these words from God. Quote, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God says here in Isaiah 6, 11, how long will their hearts be hardened? until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. Now hold that in your mind and hear the pronouncement that Jesus makes on the nation of Israel in Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38. You can just hear this. You'll remember these words. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Same word from his lips that appears in the Greek translation of Isaiah 6, 11. Jesus came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. That house is desolate. And yes, verse 13 here in Our text in Isaiah speaks of a national remnant that will remain. It says, the holy seed is its stump. Chapter 11 of Isaiah is going to call that the stump of Jesse. Does that bring to your mind some Christmas themes? In chapter 11, the the, the entire hope of the nation, and really the hope of the whole world as we see there, is that from that stump, there will come forth one growth, a shoot, But when we sing about it at Christmas, we don't call it a shoot. We don't call it the shoot of Jesse. We call it the rod of Jesse. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. The image that Isaiah is giving us is that God has ordained that the whole tree be felled in judgment for its unbelief. And that as a result, when salvation does come from the line of Jesse, as God has promised it would, All praise and honor will go where? It will go to the one, the one source of Abrahamic, Davidic fulfillment of God's promises. 
I hope you'll look this week for the church newsletter that comes out. That connection between Isaiah 6 and 11 is what we're going to be looking at there and going into more detail. But let's come back to John 12, if you're still in Isaiah, and finish hearing from our text here. He concludes all this with verse 41. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And there can be some debate here. Whether he's saying, because you remember what we skipped over in Isaiah 6 was his vision of the throne and the king installed on his throne. Whether he's saying here that the enthroned king there of Isaiah 6 was Jesus, or whether he's just making clear that God's prophecies of salvation given through Isaiah are pointing to Jesus, is a matter of some debate. I hope you, understand, you see that the second one of those is obviously true, isn't it? This is what he is emphasizing. And John tells us this is the message of Isaiah. He was writing what he wrote. He was given what he was given to say because he was pointing us to Jesus. One last element to notice before we try to go back to those three questions I mentioned at the start and summarize those and make sure we've gotten them is to notice that John not only describes the Jews' rejection of the Messiah, which has been acted out before and has been foretold, he also includes the element that was always promised along the way. This is the fifth and final thing we see this morning. Description of a faithful remnant being preserved. Look at verse 42. After saying all of that, all of those strong words, even from the prophet Isaiah, here's what he says. Nevertheless, Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now let's be very clear here on some things. I believe he is describing true faith here. Many believed in Jesus. The current state of their faith that he's describing will not do. It will not do. He's describing to us a faith that in that moment is not currently able or willing to surpass the fear of man that is competing with it. Have you experienced the fact that as a genuine believer, there can be such moments in your life where fear of man overwhelms that true faith and stifles it? We'll see it later from Peter, won't we? When he denies his Lord three times. But genuine faith will not stay in that place. It will be accompanied by an identification with Jesus, by a love for God's glory that surpasses a love of glory from man. And I'm convinced that what we hear about there in 42 and 43 are the seeds of faith that we see sprout out publicly, even as early as Acts chapter 6, which is not very long after this, chronologically. We read in Acts 6, 7, these words, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Even the way that's worded is interesting. Became obedient to the faith. There are some who, even among the leadership here, who have been, the Spirit has given them eyes to see. They see who He is. But in this moment, they are too afraid to make that public. But I think it's important that we hear verses 42 and 43 like that because John is telling us about a believing remnant 
that exists despite the overall unbelief. Weak though it is, it's real. And I think that matters for us to say because describing it like that fits with the way God's salvation of the Jews is described over and over again. We already heard in John 1.11, he, from 11 to 12, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's the point that Paul's concerned to make in Romans 9, the passage that Seth read to us at the beginning. Let me reread for you verses 27 to 29 there. Paul writes this, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as, I, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You hear that that's important in the biblical testimony of what God's doing with Israel, that it be seen that among this unbelief and rejection, he has always preserved for himself a remnant. It's something that God cares to make clear. That the promises of rescue to the nation have not been lost to them and given to the nations in their place. Rather, that salvation promises were always meant for the whole world and that the Jews too are experiencing them but they're doing so through a remnant of the nation and not through the economy of the nation itself. And Paul opens Romans 11 by pointing to himself. He says, God's promises to Israel didn't fail. Look, here I am. I'm an Israelite. I'm trusting Christ and being saved. And he tells us in verse 5 there, it has always been told and it is currently seen that it's a remnant that have received the promises. God has never promised to do anything different than that. This is what we're seeing put on display through Jesus' words, but also through the Spirit's work in John explaining these things to us. This is how God's redemptive plan is unfolding. And you can see now why this whole passage was kicked off, because a bunch of Greeks came and asked to hear from Jesus. And he says, okay, it's time. This is his purpose for the world. Now let's recap what we've heard this morning in terms of those three questions. We've been given description here of first, what has happened? And that is that God has chosen not to extend supernatural saving grace to the many in the nation of Israel, the nation as a whole, with the result that the nation's common response to Christ was unbelief and rejection and judgment. We've also been given description as to why it happened that way. And we got that especially from the Isaiah 6 reference. The nation is judged for its unbelief. It's reduced to a stump. And the result is that the singular growth of life and blessing out of that stump, whose name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, receives all glory. Paul writes about this. And in particular, using resurrection life language, in Colossians 1.18, he says of Christ, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. This is God's purpose for creating in the first place, that the glories of his Son would be put on display for all to see forever, with no competing 
for first place. He has seen to it that Jesus Christ comes to have first place in everything. And in this case, he is the victory coming out of Israel and fulfilling, inheriting all the promises God has made to his people. Lastly, I hope we've been able to see not just what happened and why, but also how it's good that God has worked this way. Because by the hardening of the Jews, what has happened? Salvation has come to the Gentiles. We've looked at Paul quite a bit, and Romans quite a bit this morning, because of how much he has to say about this. But there's one more place I'd have you look with me for yourselves. Would you turn? This is the last place we'll turn here. Romans 11, 7. I'll read verses 7 and 8 and verse 11. Romans 11, 7. Paul asks a question and answers it. And it sounds very familiar to us, given what we've seen this morning. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. He makes it very clear there what we're hearing here in John. But on the question of the goodness of God working this way, go down to verse 11. He asks another question there. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Were they ordained as a nation simply to stumble so that they might finally fall irrevocably and be done? Was that God's purpose? To just do away with them? Is that why he's doing this? He says, by no means. Rather, through their, their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Israel's trespass means nothing less than the riches of God's salvation extending out to the entire world to every tongue and tribe and nation. Never whole nations. That is not the purpose of God unto salvation, but remnants from within every single one. And that includes Israel. But theirs is an even greater honor because it's through them nationally, this is what the book of Galatians is about, that God preserved the seed of the woman, the faithful remnant line, through whom the actual seed of promise came. The one who came and crushed the serpent's head in direct fulfillment of the Genesis 3.15 promise. It's through them and God's work in them that this one came. God has never broken a promise. And all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. My friends, often we close our time in God's word together with exhortation to certain actions which is good. We want to seek to live in light of what we hear from our Lord and Savior in his word. But maybe this morning, the proper thing is to leave with exhortation to certain thoughts. Because what all of this drives home to us, as we see God's plan unfold, are thoughts of just how completely in control our God has always been as to the salvation of his people and the glorifying of his son. We've just finished celebrating the Thanksgiving holiday, and there is never a lack of gifts from God's hand for us to be thankful for, is there? But here is one more, in case we missed it. We worship a God who has never struggled 
to maintain control over a square inch of his creation, who has never experienced defeat, who has never been frustrated. History is not an account of God striving and wrestling against a nearly equal opposing power. History is a story of God putting his glories on display in the face of his Son, our Lord and King Jesus Christ. And in that do all of our thankfulness reside. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you call us as your people to the simple faith of a child, to believe that you are trustworthy, that the work of Jesus is enough on our behalf, and to cling to him. This is the milk of your word. We live upon it, and we thank you for it. Lord, we thank you as well that you have not left us only to milk, but in the depths of your word, you have led us on to meat and to sometimes deep things as you have shared with us insight into the mysteries of your purposes, things not even revealed to the sons of men in other generations. It's a great honor, and we're thankful, Lord. We're the better for it. You equip us to trust you more by it, to understand what you might be doing when you call us to live lives of laying down our rights, our lives, living a life that is willing to be faithful unto death, obeying you and following after Christ in ways that do not look like victory according to the standards of this world. Lord, thank you for revealing your plans. That are for us in Christ. Helping us to understand that that's in fact exactly what he has done. He has come meek and lowly, not grabbing after his rights, but knowing the purpose you've brought him here for. And he came and he laid down his life at the cross, even the death of a cross. Lord, help us to walk after him. Help us to continue to pursue your word, to be hungry for it, so that we might know what are the callings you have for us in this life as we follow our Lord. Help us, Lord, to be near to the light. Keep us, Lord, near to the light of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen.